Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. This is Pam McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And joining us on the phone is Brian Gallagher, who is President and General Manager of the Mountaineers. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Pat, for having me on. Yeah, this is great. Brian and I ran into each other last Wednesday night. I think WDEV was uh, sponsoring the game, and we chatted, and I found out what was happening at the field, and here you are. Well, no, it's great. We have a lot of exciting stuff going on this year with the capital campaign and the team right now, knock on wood, is in first place and playing really well and and uh, just excited to be a part of it for sure. So I, I hope people realize what a treasure it is to have you all here right in Montpelier. I mean, it's a great field. It's a, obviously great uh, folks playing the game, and uh, it's a wonderful evening. You get to see lots of people you know. Um, yeah, so it's, it's more of a, you know, it's funny, it's, it's more about... More than just baseball, as you know, it's like a community event. You see exactly. people down there that you haven't seen for a while, and it's just like the old days when your kids used to go to these band concerts and run around and see all your buddies. It's kind of like that. The kids are there for exactly. a lot of social I, didn't, I saw some people I hadn't seen in a long time. It was kind of a real treat. Yeah, so. you see all the kids running around trying to get foul balls and get autographs from players and, you know, the parents and other multi-generations are sitting in the grandstands watching the game and socializing, and, and it's, just, it's just a great time, a good community. Well, you're the perfect person really to ask, because I, I was going to drag one of the kids over. Why were all the kids, is it like a theme night? It was the cat in the hat theme. Did they oh, just yeah, do we, that? Or? We had a Fool's Fest night, which Tim Bevan, who's a board member, is a, is, he, he remembers back way back in the day they used to have Fool's Fest in Montpelier, so we had a theme night, and he he has a, uh, a shop and, and tons of inventory, so he brought down Cat in the Hat and lots of different oh. hats and, and outfits and was giving them away at tables. So kids were grabbing them. They even gave me a, a mohawk hat with red, white, <laughs> blue colors, and I, I didn't put it on that night, but I figured at some point down the road I might have to do that. So. Well, it sure, it sure added to the entertainment, I'll tell you. I actually thought maybe the Mountaineers did a theme night, but all the kids were so excited to be running around and uh, – and you enlisted a lot going raffle, raffle tickets. But anyway, back, before we get way off script, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background um, before and during the Mountaineers? Sure, yeah. I, I, went, I went to school up at Linden State back in the day and, and uh, graduated there in the ni- uh, 90s. And just basically, once I finished up there, I, I got a job in Montpelier, in the Montpelier school system. And I've uh, been there ever since. This is going on year 32. So it's been a great... Yeah. Great fit for me. Um, enjoy going to work every day, and and then being able to do baseball in the summer um, is just a bonus because I'm a lifetime baseball fan, and you know grew up playing sports, and it's been a lot of fun to uh, to run the team for the last uh, 21 seasons. That is that is great, and you've got quite the record, which we'll talk about in a little while. I knew you'd be a success. I was doing research before you came on the show, and it said in connection with Linden State College, they were taking phys ed that your course study research focused on empowering students with skills and individual strengths and self-directed development. That, sir, is the sign of a good leader. So good well, for you. Well, thank you. I went to, when I did my master's at SNHU, I really focused on a lot of that, uh, kind of continuing on through that um, that work. And I really enjoyed it, bringing different um, 
standards into the into the curriculum, and we do a lot of fitness-related classes now. It's lifetime fitness and what kids are going to need to know when they get out of school. It's not the old days of PE that you and I remember. It's it's more fitness-related, lifetime activity-related. So I've enjoyed it, and uh, you know, I don't miss any days at work. Go to work every day, enjoy it, and uh, just you. I'm happy that it worked out well for, for kind of two two areas I was interested in. All I remember is what we had to wear for PE. Oh, my God. <laughs> We won't go yeah, there. Yeah, we try to anyway. forget those days, right? The square dancing units. We don't do any of that stuff anymore. So that's exactly. uh, that's well in the past, which is good. So Friday nights, we all went. It was a family affair. I have to tell people that are listening. In 2017, you were awarded the uh, VFW Vermont High School Teacher Educator Award. 2016, the Montpelier Vermont uh, WV. I can't say it. VFW. Sorry. Uh, Teacher of the Year Award, and in 2014, the Times Argus Best of the Best. Congratulations! That's well, that says a lot. And and you see, I was watching you at the game, and you know a lot of people. Well, thanks. It's, it's been fun. It's been like I said, I'm on uh, the second generation of kids coming through. I had many of these kids back when they were in sixth, seventh grade when I taught at the middle school, and then going over to the high school, and now I'm seeing seeing their kids graduate. So it does make me feel old, but you know, I think. As long as you're active and moving and keeping keeping in shape, and you know it, it does seem like the time flew by in a hurry. It's been a funny. I career. bet it I did. Know. Well, anytime you deal with kids, you can't go wrong. Um, uh, but anyway, but you have a wonderful team of players uh, this year, as in years past. I read where the franchise kicked off in 2003, and you were right there. I understand. How how did this all come to be? How did the Mountaineers get started? Well, back back in 2001, we started the idea. Eddie Walbridge and a, and a bunch of us, there were five of us at the time, got together and came up with some ideas to make this work. And at the time, the New England Collegiate Baseball team was in every New England state except for Vermont, and they wanted to expand to Vermont. Um, so we worked together with them uh, basically for two years to kind of get everything in order, started to do some fundraising and uh, getting all the pieces put together, and then 2003 was our first year. But, again, it was five people at the time just kind of, like, put our heads together, worked on it, and then it's grown since then. We have a board now that 12 great people that all have full-time jobs and work year-round in in many different areas. And uh, with that and all the volunteers, the host families, putting all the pieces together, it's been a a big success in the Vermont area, and it's certainly great for the economy, having 40 players in town all summer and – most of their families will come up for a week to a month and stay in hotels and uh, shop in the area in, in addition to all the people that come to the ball game. So it's, it's a good economic development as well as uh, just great for people in the central Vermont area to go where you can get low-cost family entertainment. Okay. Uh, Brian, I read where the team is just a, a handful away uh, of victories for setting a new record as the winningest squad in the league. That is that's spectacular. Well, last Can you year talk we did, about the team's record over the years? I mean, it's just gotten sure. better, I think. Yeah, we, we had uh, 32 wins last year, which tied the league record all time. Um, so wow. that was pretty impressive. It's probably not going to happen every year, obviously. That's tough to do. It. The league's been around, I think, 30 years, and uh, we've been around 21 seasons. So um, to get that record and, and have that, that was pretty exciting. And now we're we're looking to you know continue that on. We're Right now, it's still early in the year. We're 11 and four with with one tie. Unfortunately, we had a tie the other night. Once you get to the extra innings of a doubleheader, you can only play two extra innings, and the league calls it a tie at that point, um, just to save on pitching and um, not, you know, 
having games go until midnight, that type of thing. So, um, yeah, we're working really hard. We're Like I said, we're right up near the top of the standings, and we hope that uh, we can kind of finish off another championship this year. How exciting. That's great. You know, you mentioned the tie, and my husband and I had this discussion about whether you follow um, professional baseball rules and regs, like the, the latest one they did about the uh, pitchers and um, about how m- much time they should take to warm up or whatever, and, and the batters, how many breaks they have. I think that's correct. Do you follow pretty much their rules? Because when you had the tie the other day, I went, well, that's it. And then it ended, uh, and I said, well, that's a little different, isn't it? It is, and, it, and that's not my favorite rule that we have to follow. I, you know, I don't mind the ones where you get to extra innings and you can put a runner on second base, and that gives <laughs> you a chance to kind of finish those games up so they don't end in ties. Um, you know, but it's, it is one of those things where we have 25 pitchers on our roster, um, which we used to only have 25 players on the entire roster. Now it's, we have about 25 pitchers and we have 40 players. So having that little bit of a luxury gives us a little more flexibility, but because they play every day and there's so many rainouts and double headers, um, you don't want to overthrow guys and have them get arm injuries and send them back to school with, uh, with injuries. So, that rule, I guess, makes sense in that way, but it's certainly not the fans' favorite to have a tie game. And uh, But it is what it is, and, and we do follow that rule. Um, but we don't have the bigger bases. We don't have the pitch clock uh, that they do at major league level. Um, so I think it's a good compromise. Yeah, I must admit I love the pitch clock. I love to see how fast those – it's amazing how fast those – pull. and when you get hit, you can understand why they hurt. Yeah, having that radar gun on the scoreboard for us, I think a lot of fans do like that. We had two pitchers the other night throwing 95. Uh, oh. Probably going to get you know a good chance of getting drafted this year by Major League Baseball um, in, on July 8th, which you know we could lose some players like we do every year that get uh, called up in the draft and many former players. But you know to, that's what they're here for. They're here to do the best they can. They're they're some of the top prospects in the nation and. Uh, the NECBL, which is the league we're part of, um, along with the uh, the Nighthawks down in Hartford, um, we're the number two league in the whole country. So the Cape Cod League oh. is number one. The NECBL, which we're part of, is number two. And then I think it goes way down from there. You, like the Futures League, the Lake Monsters, I think they're in the top 12 at this point, but we're still you know, holding on to that number two spot. So it's, it's great baseball. It's the highest level of baseball in Vermont, and we hope to just keep uh, making it better each year. Well, I, I get a big kick out of when the um, announcer announces the batter, where where he's from, and it, they're from everywhere. How, I mean, they obviously because you're so well ranked in the in the league, they hear about you and probably want to come play here. Um, and I yeah, how it, do, it, and it, I can't quite get handle on how that all works. It's really it, it's easier to recruit. Um, you, you know, we still have to recruit against the Cape League because again, they're you know who who doesn't want to play on Cape Cod during the summer in Newport, Rhode Island, <laughs> and you know down in Martha's Vineyard. That's a great spot to spend your summer. But uh, it, we do have a good good reputation for bringing in top talent and a good place to play in a nice community. Um, so that helps. And uh, you know, we we have sent 24 guys on to play in Major League Baseball in the short run that we've had. So um, guys see that it's a good good chance to go professional and, and get noticed by the scouts. So. Brian, um, you just mentioned on July 8th some some uh, team players may be leaving. You have, that happens a lot. I mean, it, there's just a rotation, right, for the, for the team. How do you ensure that um, you have the right strengths and skills 
um, because I was reading somewhere about the importance, obviously, of the pitcher, the catcher, um, the people that play the field. How how do you balance it out? Yeah, it's it's a trick. Um, you know, back in the day, it used to be a 25-person roster, and you would keep most of those players all year unless somebody got hurt. Now it's like we have 40 on our roster just to kind of uh, guard against that when guys get shut down. College coaches at these high-end schools, you know, they're making a lot of money now, and, and part of it is, like, job protection for them. They, We had one school that had a really good prospect catcher that was planned on being here since September, and about a week before the season called up and said, hey, we're not going to send him out because we're just afraid that he could get hurt. We're going to protect him and keep him home weightlift all summer. And oh, that's wow. the last thing you want to hear. Uh, we, we did get very fortunate. We have three great catchers. In fact, one of them was the player of the week in the league this week, uh, Nate law from uh, Cornell he was a catcher but we've had some really good success doing that our, our head coach Mitch Holmes uh, does a lot of the legwork and uh, contacts coaches and we get a lot of uh, referrals and we go back to those coaches that have sent us guys in the past that have worked out well and some of the ones that haven't um, maybe oversold some of their players we tend not to go back to those guys very often to get yeah. players so it is a little bit of a juggling act but we do have 40 guys on the roster right now and we know in July we're going to lose about 10 guys many of them pitchers that are on innings limits. When they get to that certain point, they head back. Um, and then we've already got another group of players that we've committed to. Once they leave, we just call somebody and say, okay, come on up, and we add them to the roster. So we're doing the best we can on just managing the numbers. Um, but, again, juggling 40-player roster spots during the year makes it interesting. And, you know, you sometimes you get somebody in that may not be at the same level as somebody that you're losing to the major league draft. So it is tricky, but um, – you know, I give our head coach a lot of credit for really kind of digging in deep and finding finding these guys when they're available. Yeah, I think when we're talking about all these players, we need to give a big shout-out to all the volunteers who help you with all the, uh, the events you're doing, but also who open their houses to these players. That's um, that's a big commitment, and, I, and it's fabulous because um, I've heard, I know a couple of people who um, do that, and um, they love meeting the young men. They're they're all extra lovely. Um, they they can't say anything but wonderful things about them. So thank you to all the volunteers who make this happen for sure, right? Yeah, without the volunteers uh, coming to the ballpark every night, working hard and working a lot of them year round, you know, as volunteers and getting things ready. And the host families, like you said, opening your house up to two to three players. Some of these um, host families host two to three players and have done yeah. it for twenty years. Um, you know, it's great. It, they enjoy it. Um, if they have families, the kids get to go to camp for free, uh, baseball camps. They, they get season tickets. They can go to any ballpark in the league with a ticket. Um, and it's just a, it's a good experience. These players will keep in touch, send them Christmas cards and birthday cards during the year. And they will, uh, you know, these players, when they get called up, will go to, you know, send them tickets to ball games. I mean, people go to Fenway and different ballparks to see some of the Mountaineer players that they've hosted as they've uh, come through Fenway or New York or wherever they happen to be. And, um, you know, they get invited to weddings, and some of them go to see them in college. Even the ones that aren't going pro, they'll go down and visit them at their college and uh, watch a game during the spring season the next year. So they do develop a good bond, and, and uh, we really appreciate the uh, the fact that they're generous to let them stay at their house for the summer. That's great. Everybody wins in that arrangement for sure. That's great. For sure. Um, you mentioned Mitchell Holmes. Could you talk a little bit about him? He's your head coach, and obviously you two have some serious chemistry because you're doing great. It's, yeah, he's been a he's a really energetic uh, young coach. Um, he he's in his third year with us. He was an assistant coach uh, for one year, and then with the head coach decided uh, to move on and go. You know, he 
isn't coaching summer ball anymore. He's got a young family and decided to give that part of his job up. Um, Mitch stepped right up and, and has been our head coach for two years. And like I said, his first year here set the league record for most wins. And this year, you know, doing right, going in that same direction again very well. So he's energetic. He, he spends a ton of time at the ballpark helping players with extra batting practice. And, um, you know, he's, he's on the phone living and breathing baseball all the time. So getting players, recruiting, and, and making things work on the field. That's a great job for you. That's really great. Um, yes. When I was doing the research, I read a lot about your team and you uh, and COVID. That um, that really um, changed everything for a while, didn't it? You were one of the first teams to decide, and I think it was a good decision since we didn't know much about it in the beginning to cancel uh, to cancel that season in 2020. I think 2020, and you also yes. sadly canceled uh, the summer camps, but probably a good decision. Yeah, we were put in a really bad position that year, um, you know, with everything, like everybody was. Everything was kind of shutting down because we didn't really know a lot about it. There was no vaccines at the time. So it was kind of like a yeah. almost a necessity for the host families alone to bring players into a host family situation with young kids and some of the host families we have are older folks. And we didn't want to risk that in the community. So our board uh, was the first to commit to, like, we're not going to do this this year. And uh, as hard as that was, we just made the decision and said, hey, this isn't the right thing to do right now. And within about two weeks, um, the rest of the league followed suit and said, yeah, we've decided as a league we're not going to do it. And there was one league that did it, um, and it seemed like it worked out okay for them, but it was definitely uh, across the board. Many of the college summer leagues canceled uh, for that reason. And then coming back off that, it was like, uh, people appreciated so much of getting back to the ballpark, and now the crowds are just, you know, even bigger than they were before. Because I think people now appreciate the fact that they're back out to somewhat of a normal reality now. So that's good. So that's great. Now I mentioned the summer camps before um, that you had to close them during COVID. Are they back open and uh, filled with kids? Yes. In fact, we're we had 85 kids last uh-huh. week uh, in the camp, and they range from six to 12 years old. We have. Ten players, four coaches down there, so they're small groups. We break them up by age groups, so the five- and six-year-olds are in one group, and we, we separate them out into different areas on fields and do skill work, and then they do games. And Yeah, so the camps are going well, and we still have two weeks of camps uh, left, and you can sign up through the website. Um, the rec department does that for us. And uh, two more weeks of camps coming up for the summer, and we think they'll be fairly full as well. So. And it's all about baseball, right? It's all baseball, but they get a lot of lessons. They get to hang out with the players, talk to them, and get a lot of skill development and, and uh, you know, have a good time. They come to the game, and um, they already know some of these guys from camp, and then they go out. We have a special night uh, that we send all the, the camp kids for that week out to the field with a player for the anthem. So they'll have about 10 kids out in each position with the players, and they seem to get a charge out of that, and, and the players do as well. I think that kind of reminds them of when they were when that age playing baseball. So it's 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 a good win-win for everybody. That's really great. Uh, my dad was uh, involved in the little league in our town, and oh my God, he would get so he gets so wound up. I think his favorite thing was throwing a parent out of the game when they would cause trouble in the stands. But I haven't seen that much over the years. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, unfortunate. Sometimes out. Little League has that. Uh, they, people get pretty fired up at those Little League games. Yeah, and, uh, not always <laughs> didn't the best, play my kid sure. enough, blah, blah, blah. You know. yeah, anyway, he used yeah. to get, you, you're out. And, and uh, the guy would be a little unhappy, but he'd leave. And Dad just smiled, you know. But, right, um, right. He, I think uh, that when you're into baseball, you're into it. And um, 
it's great to see that enthusiasm. Um, and even the fans, um, at, when I went to the game the other day, they were all charged up as well, and, and it's, a, it's a great group of people all around. Well, I give the, you know, the, the, the team's exciting to watch, and the fact that the, we have a really good, new, fairly new sound system up in the stands, and uh, it's got some good sound effects. Uh, James Cross runs the uh, board up there and there, and he, he cranks that thing up with some different zingers once in a while, and it gets the crowd going and the music, and it just kind of is a fun place to be in the summer, in between inning so, games and all that, the mascot. It just makes it fun. So, so Brian, this is the, your team is the college-level team, correct? And then, yes, and you, you mentioned that uh, hundreds of your players have gone on to, you said, professional leagues, but that's, that's not, um, you know, the, the top league. What comes next after the college uh, level? What's the next um, group that plays? Yeah. So the college level, this is a pretty, a, a mostly a Division One league. We do have a few other kids and pitchers that are D1 or uh, D2 or D3, but for the most part, they're D1 players, and they're guys that are potentially prospects to go on to professional baseball. So once they once they get to their junior year, they can be drafted by Major League Baseball. So juniors and seniors can be drafted. Um, and then they would go on to, if somebody did draft them, say the Red Sox drafted a player, uh, they would go to their lowest level minor league ball in most cases, which is a rookie ball league, um, or a short season A ball, which is like what the Lake Monsters used to be back when they were professional. It used to be a low season A before they turned into a college-level league as well. Um, but that they'll go on to, to A-ball and then high A and double A, triple A, and then eventually to the major leagues. And sometimes that's a five- to six- or more-year process to get there. Um, but it's something that these guys are working hard at to climb the ladder to hopefully get to that top level. And uh, like I said, we've had 24 guys that made it to the, to the highest level to Major League Baseball, and many are still there, including Joe Jakes with the Red Sox now, left-handed pitcher and uh, Tom Cosgrove, who just made it up this year with the Padres, is a left-handed pitcher, and it's just fun to watch those guys go up and make progress and keep in touch with us as an organization because they kind of remember where they came from. They remember those host families, and they remember that this was a stepping stone for them to get to the highest level. How exciting for you to watch these games and see them, huh? You say, "Hi, kids." It's been a fun run for 21 years, and I, 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 I right now, knock on wood, I haven't missed a game um, in 21 years. So it's like I kind of have my own little private streak going, and I don't want to ever miss a game. And I enjoy it, and it's fun. And, you know, people come out every night, and like you said before, it's just fun to see everybody and, yep. and be part of the community. So. And the food's good, too. May I just add that? Excellent. That yeah, we good. have a few vendors, and we have the uh, – the Three Penny has a beer garden there in left field, which is a great seat and a uh, nice area. And um, We have our own Mountaineers beer this year uh, that's put out by Lucy and Howe up in Jericho. They, they made a nice ale, and it's got a fancy little Mountaineer uh, logo on it. With uh, It's called Out of out in Left Field. So that's a pretty, pretty fun thing. We do have a Mountaineer root beer as well, um, which is – so we're really trying to expand things and make it even more fun and more um, exciting Brian, we have a caller for you. It's Catherine from Moortown. Catherine, you're on the air. All right. You didn't invite callers, but I need to share this. It was the last game of the year, and they were selling tickets as a fundraiser. But the tickets were $10. Well, my granddaughter, she works on the ship, and she's just gotten off the ship, and we always went to the Mountaineers games. She bought a ticket. Didn't she win? Four tickets to the Red Sox, and when they got in the elevator, of course they had special seats, 
and when they got in the elevator, who was in the elevator but Jim Rice? Now, she yeah. didn't know who Jim Rice was because she was way too young, but her mom knew he was somebody special because he was dressed to the nines. And he invited them to sit in his box seats. But no, they had their own. So I said, so what was the best part of that game? She said, the bathrooms. <laughs> that tells you her age. <laughs> That's true about that kids. Was Wherever you Another one them. is when we went to the games, the half and half, Bill Doyle was always there, Senator yeah. Bill Doyle, and he quite often won, but he gave the money back yeah. that he won. That was really a class act. That was Bill for I, sure. I love the affordability of the games and the accessibility, just everything about it. We're pretty lucky to have all of that right yes, here are, in Captain. our neighborhood. Thank you That's very much for here. all those comments. Yeah, and we give a shout-out to Senator Doyle. Um, he doesn't go to the games anymore, but yeah. he's still, I'm sure he's still listening. Um, yes, anyway, and Brian, sure. I know you know Bill very well. He's been a supporter of the Mountaineers for forever. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine, for those comments, and I'm glad that your granddaughter won those tickets. Sounds like a great experience. So, uh, yeah, Bill was an original board member back in 2003 when we first started the Mountaineers, and came to almost every game and, and was involved behind the scenes. We did uh, his weekly program, used to be on every every week on local access, and many times I went on that show with Hall of Famer Robin Roberts when he would come to town each year and we would uh, talk about baseball and what it was back when he played here back in the 40s when that park was first built. And uh, it was just a fun experience, and Bill had a lot of history and knew about everything you could know about baseball, especially in Vermont. So it was great to have him involved, and, and again, um, you know, I hope he's doing well. So he is. That's great. Shout out to Bill. Anyway, um, I'm going to skip over some of the questions I had. We can circle back if we have time, but I wanted to talk about the recreation field itself and what plans you've got um, sure. and give you plenty of time to talk about that. So um, I know every year I've read that you you make major improvements annually to the facility, and I'm sure your board helps and um, and uh, the community pitches in. Could you tell us what you've got planned for this year? Sure. We, we're right now in a capital campaign for, it's funny, Catherine mentioned the best thing about Fenway was the bathrooms. and It's funny to hear that, but probably the worst thing about the Montpelier field is the bathrooms. We hear that from uh. fans all the time. And, you know, they're not handicap accessible. We do have a separate portal that the city provides for handicap accessibility. But, again, we've, we know that's the biggest issue with the fields is not having enough bathroom space. So we, we're trying our best as a board to raise money and, and have a capital campaign. Um, GBA out of Montpelier um, designed a new bathroom facility, and we've presented that to city officials, and they seem to be on board with it, and we just need to try to raise the money now to do it. It's about a $600,000 price tag to go into the city property. Um, but we're, you know, we're working on it. We're working really hard to uh, raise money. We're looking for grants and any type of matching grants we can get. So if anybody out there knows of anything that would fit for ADA compatibility and, and anything that could help us um, apply for some grants, it would be great to have them reach out through the website. Our contact information is there. But we are doing a, a special thing with Wind River this year where there's two portalets that have been converted into fun jails, and we put different people in the community each night, some politicians, some business owners, and then they raise money during the week at their businesses, donations to go towards the bathrooms, and then 
they, they sit there for about three innings in jail until they get bailed out. So it is kind of a fun promotion that we're doing, and Tim Bevan, again, is a marketing kind of guy. He, he's kind of the one spearheading that every night at the ballpark. But we hope within a couple of years to have new bathroom facilities, a little bit more concession space, um, a little team changing room where the players can go in there instead of trying to change in the dugouts after the game. So all that is in the works, and we're hoping, again, to uh, upgrade the facility. We have put a lot of money into the facility from 20 years. You know, like you said, every year we're doing grading of the field, new new infield surface, fence. we put fences, lights, batting cages, warning tracks, um, scoreboards, everything down there basically that's um, physically uh, built with Mountaineers have provided the support to the city to do that. So it's been a good relationship back and forth with the city, and we hope that continues for many years. Brian, where does most of your funding come from? Does any come from the state, or is it all... Uh individual donors? It's individual donors and sponsorships. Uh, the state, we, we don't ask the city taxpayers of Montpelier for money. Uh, we don't ask the state for money. We, we try to go out and fundraise ourselves. And selling banners and game day sponsorships is a big part of it. Uh, hosting baseball camps, um, ticket prices, uh, concessions, whatever we can do. We have different vendors and we get a percentage of the vendor sales. So that's how we do it every year when we set the budget and we try to keep it as tight as we can and, and put the rest of the money that's left over at the end of the year back into the field renovations for the following year to upgrade the facility. That's great. Well, you just had your um, April 1st, uh, 2023 gala. Um, I'm sure that went well. Yeah, the, we uh, we did actually a concert uh, with Chad Hollister down there. This was our oh. big event this year and uh, down at Bar Hill, and that was a big fundraiser we did. Uh, people bought tickets, went in, and had a big event. And um, that that was our kind of it took our place of our banquets we used to hold in the winter. We did that as a as a as a, a fundraiser concert, and we we think we're going to continue to do that type of event again, just because it was so popular to have uh, a band, a live band, and and do it. And Chad did a great job with that. That's great. Bar Hill is a wonderful facility, so that's a perfect setting. Speaking of beer. Um, that's a stretch. But tell me a little bit more about your beer. Well, it, it was something that we thought we wanted to do for a number of years, and this year we just said, hey, let's let's go for it. So we started talking to uh, uh, Lucy and Hal Brewing up in Jericho, and it, it seemed like it was a great fit. Um, they were a smaller brewery, and they were able to uh, produce 500 cans of Vermont beer, and it was, uh, you know, really good, high-quality ale, and Fans love it. I mean, it seems like that's our top seller in the beer garden. They do have other varieties down there, the standard beers, but that, those seem to be the one everybody wants to try. And uh, I'll be surprised if the 500 cans make it through the end of the season. It's, uh, oh, that's it's definitely I wish, been a popular choice. I guess I didn't choice. walk around. Well, I have to go get that now. We'll be back. Um, we like beer in this house. So that's a, great, that's a great seller. Beer and baseball, what else is there? And French fries. Yeah, and mascots, and you can't beat it. So Exactly. I love Skip, by the way. He's so cool. Um, so anyway, um, you're going to be doing this. People can um, help help raise money because, it's just, as uh, Catherine said, this is a treasure. It's right in our backyard. And the tickets are reasonable, and it's a great evening for the kids, and they're safe there. They, I, they're all running around, and everybody watches out for them, I think. Um, so how – just reiterate a little bit of how that get-me-out-of-jail thing works. Is that – uh, somebody brings it back to their company and um, with pictures of them in jail, or how does that? How do they promote that? 
Yeah, they've got a Venmo. There's a Venmo account set up, and it's uh, there's a big um, code on the on the door. So people come in and they take pictures, and then they send it out a lot to their social media, and and people can donate through there, and it goes into raise money for them specifically for that night they're at the ballpark, and then people can then walk up and drop money into the the jar as well. So it's more of a fun way to to raise awareness that we need new bathrooms in the worst way. Um, like I said, they're probably the bathroom facility is probably the worst in the league um, and pretty outdated, and they just need to be upgraded. So we want to do the best we can to try to help in that process, and, and hopefully we can, again, get some grant money, um, ADA money, whatever is available, and try to put that towards what the Mountaineers are raising as well. So well, we're hoping within two years to have that facility built, but, again, it comes down to how much it's going to cost and how much we can raise in a short time. So I, lo- I love Catherine's comments about the – um, about I love the bathrooms the best because kids that's what whenever I used to bring my daughter anywhere to a restaurant or anything, that's what we had to check out it's something kids do I don't know why that <laughs> is but I'm sure the kids that run around the baseball field are always uh, heading to the bathrooms it's just something they're curious about I think but I think so too yeah it's interesting I go uh it, it does make the experience much better if you have nice clean bathrooms. And we, you know, the field is the field looks great. You know, the city uh, rec department workers um, have done a great job this year, really taking the extra step and making that field look as nice as it does. And uh, with our volunteers helping out as much as we can as well. Um, but yeah, the bathroom facility. If we could change one thing with magic wand, that would be it. So we well, hope to really do that and, and upgrade. We'll help you get the word out. And and there's plenty of parking there. I mean, it's. It's just for, and may I, this is a very strange comment, but the the bleachers are built so I'm very comfortable on those bleachers. Usually, when you go to other bleachers, I won't mention any name in Barry, but yeah. um, the bleachers are very uncomfortable. And yours, I don't know how they built them different, but they work for me. So good for yeah, you. The, the, um, well, I was going to say they were built back in the WPA project, a little history of the field, like 80 plus years ago. So they were built well, and they're they've held the test of time. We paint the bleachers every single year, so they have several coats of paint on there in the last 20 years. But they are um, vintage, and you know people come in. We had coaches come in from North Carolina this week to look at some of our players um, who were in the draft portal, and they uh, they just raved about the ballpark and how cool it is to look back it's kind of like a field of dreams in a small scale and uh, you know they aren't the, probably the most comfortable seats in the world but like you said they're structurally sound and it, you get that feel when you're there it's like you're right in the action you're close to home plate and it's, it's oh. exciting to be part well, of it. I mentioned it I thought it was a strange comment but um, I said to my husband I said these are great you, you know you feel like you can sit up and and it, it covers your whole leg and uh, down to your knees and you can just sit very comfortably and lean back and they're really great Brian, I read that uh, you have a strategic plan, which I was very impressed with. Who did you bring together to develop uh, this document? Well, I'll tell you what. Richard Agney, back uh, when we first started writing this, um, he was um, with the Vermont uh, Chapter Economic Development. And we went to that group and said, hey, we're working on getting a team to Vermont. This is the idea we have. Can you help us? And uh, Richard, um, as the head of that group, stepped up immediately and, and gave us a hand in that and uh, helped our board write that up. And he's now been on our board uh, for the last 16 years. So he, he jumped on board after that, saw what it was, um, really got interested, and his wife Alice as well, who's a fan, and they were honored and the super seniors on WCAX last year for all the work they do with the Mountaineers. Or, you know, And it's just been a tremendous help having 
his advice on the board from that perspective. And that's kind of an example of one of the board members that we have many other ones on here. You know, from we have a CPA as our treasurer. We have a, our corporate secretary happens to be an attorney. And, you know, on and on goes down through the list, um, just people that are involved at different businesses. So everybody on our board has some unique background, and together we put this together and make it make it work for the community as a nonprofit 501c3 group. I've worked with Richard over the years. He is one of the best, I'll tell you. He's, uh, I don't think people realize um, quite how much he does for the community. He's a good guy. And I like exactly. the strategic plan because its priorities focused on lead, engage, and advocate. I mean, there you go. That's yeah, a, it's really, we have like four big points that we focus on all the time as part of our mission. And, you know, providing low-cost family entertainment, you mentioned that. It's, you know, family of for $12 getting into a ballpark and it's just like you can't go to anywhere and get entertainment like that for that kind of money and and then field obviously fielding a team that's worthy of fan support and I think we've done well on that end and you know providing our top uh, college players in the nation a chance to show their skills off to get to the next level of professional baseball and the last part is giving back to the community and contributing to the local economy which you talked about before just with the amount of people coming into the area and seeing games and parents from all over the country traveling to see their, their son for a week or more. And it just all wraps together to make this work so well. And as long as we continue to get the support from fans and sponsors and, and volunteers, it's going to be a winner. So we hope we hope to continue that for many years. That's really great. Um, I know um, that I read somewhere, and I don't know how you do this, but you said that you try to play everyone. And uh, you were just mentioning, I think you said you had a, so many pitchers. And how how do you manage, this is a serious talent you have, manage to play everyone, if that's what you do, but also to keep the right skills in the right balance because you play offense and defense, and I'm sure you know the skills of the other team that's, that you're playing against, and you have to make adjustments for their level of skill. Um, how do you do all that? Well, I tip my cap to the coaches because they're the ones that actually put the players on the lineup card. So um, they're, you know, they're looking at lineups. We have TrackMan and Synergy in every ballpark in the league, which is uh, sponsored by Major League Baseball. So basically every pitch that comes in is tracked through a computer, every launch angle, every speed of the pitch, location of the pitch, type of pitch. It's all done through a computer. And so the Major League Scouting Bureaus get all this information so they can then track players and see how, they, how they're doing uh, game-to-game, pitch-to-pitch. And uh, with that, it takes volunteers to know how to operate that equipment up in the press box. And then, again, we get scouting reports. The coaches will go through and print out pages of reports on every player, where, they're, where they hit the ball, where they, you know. So they kind of make the lineup based on what they know from not only our players but other teams playing against us, as you said. And... Uh, make adjustments but again attracting top players it's not as you know it's not like you're coaching a team where you have three or four really good players where you can um drops off significantly when you look at the lineup and who's on our roster they can they might have three catchers all three of those catchers are top notch so if you give one guy a day off and one is a dh or playing first you've got another one catching um they get their time off to rest but they also get a chance to play a lot and they keep them happy um, Pitching-wise, we we play so many games, it's almost every day. We could use five to six pitchers a night, so you're not wearing guys' arms out and causing injuries, so you want to kind of keep them fresh, throw fresh arms in, and then even with 25 pitchers, when you're playing every day and part of double headers, everybody feels like they're included and in getting a lot of innings in. That's pretty exhausting, playing every day, especially if you throw in a 
double header or two, isn't it? Chris, they're young. It is. They're young. In their travel, we do travel by um, Memorial Valley Transportation first class, you know, busing, and that's a league rule that everybody has to uh, travel by coach. So when you're traveling six New England states, uh, right now they played in Newport, Rhode Island last night. They stayed over in Massachusetts, and they're going to Martha's Vineyard today, and then they're going to come back across the ferry, get back to the hotel at 1 or 2 in the morning, and then go back to uh, Bristol, Connecticut tomorrow, and then travel back to Vermont. So they do a lot of traveling, but when we do those long road trips, we try to uh, package it so that they're doing three trips in a row sometimes, and they're staying overnight. So it's not quite as much wear and tear on them that way, but um, definitely there's a lot of traveling going on, and they're young, and they bounce back a lot faster than I would. I think that's the key, the young part, yeah. because in listening to you, I'm already exhausted. I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, seriously. I, I uh, We stay in Maine a lot, come back and forth, and the three and a half hours gets to me every once in a while. It's like, hey. But yeah. um, anyway, um, and they're so polite. They're so nice. Um, that's what I, I like about all the young folks on your team. They're just wonderful young men, great, great as athletes should be for role models for our children. Um, yeah, that is one of the things that we really emphasize with the coaches. We don't want just the best player that you can get. We want the best player that can also fit into the Vermont community. And, you know, we hear it from uh, Green Mountain Community Fitness. When the kids are up there, they're like completely, they have memberships up there. They're, you know, speaking highly of how nice the kids are to the other people in there. And, and that's what we want to hear is good reports. And we want the host families to rave about how good of an experience it was and, you know, we rarely have to send anybody home, and and, uh, and and usually when we do, it's for something that's a team rule that they maybe stayed out too late or did something. But it's not usually an issue with behavior with these guys. They're very good, well-behaved. They're, most of them are really trying to get to the next level, and they want to make sure they get a good report back to their college and their college coach from us in the end of the summer. So they're, they are working very hard to, to really focus on what they need to do up here. That's great. They sure get to see New England, don't they? They do. They're traveling six New England states, although most of the time they're on the bus, they're looking at it from the window, and then they get to the ballpark, play the game, and then they drive back in the dark. So they probably don't have a lot of time to actually get out and, and go look around in different areas, but you know, just the fact that they can you know, look out the window and see six states, even if it's from the interstate, it's kind of different to you know, get the experience of what New England's so Brian, all about. Brian, how long is the season? Um, when does it uh, start and end? Uh, our first game this year was June 7th, and then our last regular season game is the 29th of July. So it's a really compact season where we squeeze 44 games in in that short time, and then after that the playoffs start um, in early August, and then we'll play for hopefully we're in the playoffs for the entire uh, week and a half in August, the first couple of weeks, and then they'll go home and back to their school and get ready for fall ball and then spring ball and, and do it all over again next year. That's great. And what is the 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 big prize? Is that the college um, series? Is that what's the what's the final game that says, you know, you're it? Yeah, the final uh, one is for us. It's called the Faye Vincent Junior Cup, and Faye Vincent uh, was the was the commissioner of Major League Baseball for many years, and now and then he was the president of the New England League, which we're in. So they named the uh, championship trophy after him, and basically we get down to the end of the season and uh, all the teams that are playoff eligible play and then it's best some of our single elimination games and then it gets to two out of three and by the time we're all done you have two teams in the finals and the winner gets the cup and and everybody else goes home at that point and, and uh, that's what we're shooting for we've been fortunate we've won it uh, 
three times in the in the last well twenty seasons because I can't count the twenty one we're in right now and we have the COVID year. So nineteen seasons we've won it three times and we've been in the finals six times. So consistency wise, we're right there every year. It's just uh, very tough to win it because everybody else is recruiting and trying to do the same thing. So. Well, and and do you do uh, when you talk about recruiting? Your coaches and you must do all the the recruiting. How? Um, yeah, do the you coaches. Interview all these all these um, young men. Yeah, the coaches really do the the most of the legwork as far as like yeah. looking up players, contacting coaches. We certainly have a lot of contacts over the last twenty years. That um, certain coaches I'll call up. Like I'm pretty close with the Dartmouth coach. I know him really well. And some of the other New England coaches, I'll call them and talk to them about players and then get the information to our head coach. But for the most part, our head coach will call up, do a little background check on each guy, make sure it's a good fit, and then we have a conversation. And usually we both agree on the players, and if there's a disagreement, we we kind of talk it out and see if it makes sense to sign them. And, and then we, we issue the contracts through here and then um, – kind of like hope that they all show up. The biggest thing is between when you sign them in September and they get here in June, how many are going to get hurt, how many are going to go to summer school to change their plans. And it's a, it's a little bit of a shell game at times where you think you're getting a roster in and then six guys don't show up and you have to replace them. And then certain guys leave during the season, you have to replace them. So it's a moving moving target, but we, we think we've done pretty well with it over the last 21 years. Diana, so. I've got to interrupt you because our show has come to the end. I can't thank you enough for coming on. If there's anything we can do to help with the fundraiser, let me know. We'll keep uh, reminding people. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Stay tuned. The next hour is Ann Galloway. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining me for the next hour on the phone is Ann Galloway, who's the founder and editor-at-large at Vermont Digger. We're going to talk tonight about Anne's fabulous career and her uh, investigative reporting on EB-5, which I think we all know about. Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, this is great. I'm very excited. Uh, you really picked quite the topic to uh, pursue over the years. Um, Anne, you've been there 13 years at Digger. Um, you started yourself with a camera. Right, and you've decided to step away from uh, the daily grind of publishing. Um, could you talk about that's a big decision? Could you talk about this decision and um, why? Sure. Yeah, you know, I had been um, working at Digger for a long time, and I had recognized um, a couple of years before I decided uh, to step down that um, it was important in order for the organization to become. Um, you know, a long-term proposition um, that I needed to uh, start delegating a lot of my duties um, to the leadership team internally. And so I started that work um, a couple of years before I decided to step down. And, um, you know, I felt like it was the right time. 
because I had the people in place um, who could um, really pick up the slack and uh, make, um, you know, Digger an institution. So that's that's why I did it. And I I think the new CEO, Sky Barsh, is terrific. And she has national experience at Chalkbeat in the nation. um, And she's an entrepreneur herself. She started to. We interviewed her on the show um, maybe a month ago. Very impressive. Very impressive. Good decision. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think she's terrific. And uh, we first met at the Times Argus when I was a Sunday editor there. And she had just started uh, as a reporter. So I've known Sky for a long time. And I have great faith that she's going to take the organization, um, you know, to the next level. Whatever that level is, I have no idea. But, you know, <laughs> well, that's uh, one of the questions we've got to ask you. What's next? Um, but under your, I have to tell people this, under your leadership, you have grown Vermont Digger from a $16,000 a year nonprofit with no employees to now 3 million nonprofit daily news operation with a staff of 32. And you are the largest newsroom in Vermont, and you have over 725,000 readers per month. That is staggering, and congratulations. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I, it's kind of hard for me to believe, too, how much the organization has grown. Um, I think it's really because the readers um, really care, and we care about what they um, want us to report on. So it's a, it's a good reciprocal relationship with, um, with our audience, you know. So this isn't something you envisioned 13 years ago? It just I well, think you have you are the you are the go to news people. That's uh, everybody said, Did you read Digger? Did you read Digger? Um I have a friend of mine forwarding great. me articles um from uh, Digger, so it's great. I have to share with people how I met you. You probably don't remember this and if you do I will I will be very impressed. But you would come to the state house carrying your um camera on a tripod and um, one time you were in room 11 early on, and I was sitting with this gang of, of legislative women I hung around with um, when I'd be up testifying. And you sat in the, the middle row in room 11, and I don't remember what the why we were all there. But anyway, they all they made me go up and ask you who you were. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, they made me. So I went up and I said, hi, I'm Pat McDonald, and I don't know what job I had at the time, but... I said, I'm sitting with those women over there, and they want to know who you are, so I blame them. But anyway, you graciously told me what you were doing and who you were, and I went back and reported in. And so that was right early on, you and I met and said hi. And you have, you've been around in everything. You've, you've done some great work, done some great public meetings, great coverage. It's, it's excellent. And you've got, um, Let's see, you have Peter Hines. You have all kinds of folks that work for you that are just great and young and enthusiastic. So they'll yes, we're really young, right? Thank you. It's great. So, thank you. Um, I, I, you yeah. know, I remember those early days at the legislature, and um, you know, I think especially with the video camera, people hadn't done that before, so um, it freaked some folks out. Well, they, um, they weren't sure who you fun. were. You know, I so enjoyed. My time um, with you and other people at the state house, it was like a, you know, getting a master's degree in state government, spending time uh, in the committees with um, people who really knew what was going on, like you and and uh, 
and I, I learned a lot and um, uh, yeah and, and I'm so proud of the work that the Digger folks are doing now and um, you know led by Paul Heinz and Sky Barsh and, and uh, others in the newsroom and uh, you know at the time I, uh, I had this idea that I wanted to start an online newsroom I knew I didn't want to do it all myself like you know and a lot of people just started blogs back then but I had a vision for a, a whole news organization, and I'm just so grateful that um, the readers supported us in in helping to fulfill that vision. Well, you've certainly created the stir when you go into the the committee rooms, and and room 11 for people who are listening is the is the bigger of two. Well, now they I think they use them as committee rooms, so they're not even open uh, used for public events, but. Back in the day, they used to have um, presentations, um, and people would pile into room 11. And you came in, and that uh, camera towered over you, and they were like, who is that woman? So I was asked, <laughs> being the shy, the shy retiring <laughs> person of the group. But anyway, um, but now you've said you're going to go back to your roots of investigative journal, and um, you certainly, people certainly know your name from uh, EB-5. Uh, which is the biggest financial fraud in Vermont's history. Um, I think it was about seven years ago, um, the owners and developers, who we have gotten to know very well of JPEAK, uh, were accused of misappropriating more than $200 million uh, that they raised. It's sort of like a Ponzi scheme, I think, um, that they raised for all these projects in the Northeast Kingdom, which um, you found, uh, you started tracking it and, uh, were very instrumental, I think, in paying, getting people to pay attention. And so um, I think you're going to continue that and uh, whatever else you investigate, uh, which will be good for you, I, I think, it's kind of getting back to the to the roots of things, right? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I still really love reporting and um, because it's, it's an opportunity to um, ask questions that uh, normally wouldn't ask, you know, um, because you have a license to ask uh, impertinent, pesky questions. And uh, uh, I enjoy um, learning new things. And um, I'm always curious, you know, about um, what's really underneath the surface. So it's been my, my great pleasure, really, to work on the story um, since uh, 2011, you dredged up a story that I had completely forgotten about, about uh, ANC Bio, the biomedical facility uh, oh, in right. Newport that was published in 2011 by VTD editor, and you asked if that was me, and, and it certainly was, <laughs> because there was no one else on the desk, so <laughs> that was me, uh, and um, you know, I think it's just remarkable, um, you know, what was really happening up there and how many people it affected, the contractors who didn't have, um, you know, who, who were, were basically walking off the job because they weren't paid. I mean, initially, it was such a boon um, to big companies like DEW Construction um, and many uh, smaller contractors in the Northeast Kingdom um, there was so much development happening um, just at J. Peak Resort uh, in the first, um, I'm going to say, yeah, four years of the project. 
Um, and uh, so it was um, quite a boon um, to the economy, uh, and um, there were thousands of people who were employed, and it, and it seemed like um, it was going to be uh, delivering on jobs just as promised, and then things started to fall apart uh, in 2012. And uh, that's when uh, the real work um, on my end uh, began. Yeah, and I just let folks know that on VT Digger, if you if you plug in um, EB5 archives, um, this whole laundry list, I think it's 38 pages of articles and maybe 10 to a page, so a lot of articles on EB5, and uh, um, in the beginning, and Anne was saying that she, it said by VT uh, Digger editor, and, um, and then a little bit later on, um, you actually you used your name. Um, so I had asked her if that was her, the EB, uh, the editor, and it was. So you were right there, right from the first article on 38 pages. And that was, and I remember yeah, you, when they said this biotech company was coming on, everybody was ecstatic, but obviously didn't. Oh happen. yeah, well, it was so exciting, you know, the idea that uh, the Northeast Kingdom could be a center for um, that kind of yeah. um, high tech work. Although, you know, I think from the beginning, uh, it 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 uh, really didn't add up, you know, because. Um, Newport, where where the plant was going to be located, is um, several hours from Montreal and and uh, more than an hour uh, to Sherbrooke, um, one and a half hours from UVM uh, in Burlington, and four hours from Boston, you know, which is where it's kind of the center of the biotech industry in the United States. So um, the idea of having a standalone facility there always seemed um, pretty out there. Uh, and, um, and it turns out that it, that was really um, what Kiros called the kind of crown jewel uh, of the scam. Right. And it was those investors who uh, were particularly uh, damaged by, uh, by the fraud. And we have Forbes on the line from East Corinth wants to join our conversation. Forbes, go ahead. Hi. Um on a positive note, I had a friend of mine that uh, uh, utilized the five uh, uh, program and uh, oversaw every single expenditure of that money, and it uh, was a very successful program for them. And it did work, and uh, but it was overseen personally, and uh, all expenditures were accounted for. What dismayed me was... We had a state uh, a group and, and, and some political figures overseeing this program uh, to protect our interests and everyone involved. And apparently the ball got dropped tremendously. How far did uh, Vermont Digger go into looking at uh, these people that were involved, and how did that come about? Andy, you want to take a shot Thank at that? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you may have, uh, I had a story last week um, about an investor lawsuit um, against the state of Vermont um, regarding that very question. Um, and they alleged that the state 
was both um, selling the projects directly overseas, and um, they were supposed to be overseeing the projects as well. And according to, to the documents that were filed uh, in the case, um, which I spent a great deal of time uh, pouring over, um, there was little to no oversight of the program by the regional center. Um, they didn't um, provide quarterly reports as required by the federal government. Um, they were um, really lax uh, generally, but they didn't, um, I think the most egregious thing was that they didn't uh, review the offering um, documents to investors uh, on a number of projects. And so, um, you know, I think they were more focused on helping JP get more investors than they were in making sure that the program um, was lawful. And um, so that's why uh, in a few weeks um, there will be uh, an announcement about uh, a global um, resolution uh, with all 600 uh, of the plus, 600 plus investors. Um, and um, under the agreement, um, the state will have to uh, to pay uh, investors a certain amount of money. What that will be, I, I, I don't know yet um, because they're still in the middle of mediation. Um, but they have the state has agreed uh, that they will pay the investors something, and um, so I think that says a lot uh, about um, the state's involvement. Um, you did uh, see. Governor Peter Shumlin go overseas a number of times. Uh, the records show that it was more than uh, just that one um, uh, most notorious trip that he took with a group of employees in 2013. Uh, he, he toured China and Vietnam. Uh, he also went to South America. Um, he went to Miami, and he had direct conversations uh, with individual investors um, claiming that the projects were audited uh, which was simply not true. And, um, you know, the, the same is true of Senator Patrick Leahy. He was uh, one of the, um, he's, he's thought of as the father of the EB-5 program nationally. And um, he went to um, Shanghai uh, in tw- the spring of 2014 uh, with now Senator Peter Welch um, to um, talk directly to investors uh, about um, the Vermont Regional Center and um, this was promoted uh, to investors by uh, by Jay Peak. So yeah. they, uh, there were some mistakes made. Uh, and I think, you know, what was happening in the courtroom was that um, Bar Law Group, which represented the investors, was really trying to show that regional center directors of the program um, were engaged in gross negligence, which means um, that uh, they accused the directors of knowingly um, uh, covering up some of the problems at JPEAK and um, lying to investors and that sort of thing. Uh, and then they were claiming negligence, um, breach of uh, contract and breach of good faith um, against the uh, state commerce agency. Yeah, I think, um, Anne, thank you for that. I, I Stay tuned, I guess. Uh, Forbes brings up a very good point, which I wanted to make sure our listeners knew. The EB-5 program, um, and maybe Anne can explain what that is, it's a federal program, um, and it was very successful in 
other in, in other projects here in Vermont. There were smaller projects, as Forbes alluded to, uh, talked about. There was one at Sugarbush I knew personally, and that was very successful because the projects were small and easily managed and um, done right. And um, it was there was a lot of um, uh, involvement with um, overseas folks and investors. And Anne, could you talk about what the EB-5 program was meant to be and, and how it was established by the feds? Sure. So the program was uh, established um, in the uh, 1990s and it kind of um, lay dormant for a number of years until um, the Great Recession uh, of 2008. And then it became a much more popular option for uh, developers who couldn't get bank loans at that time um, because of the financial crisis. And um, the idea behind the program is that um, developers, um, you know, are, seek to invest uh, in big projects in uh, low-income areas. And, um, and so those, that can be in urban areas uh, or in rural areas. Um, and in exchange for an investment of five hundred thousand to a million dollars, um, investors from overseas uh, can apply for um, temporary visas uh, to enter the United States and eventually um, seek permanent residency here. Um, and uh, for each investment, the developers have to show that they've created uh, ten jobs. And um, in the case of Sugarbush, as you mentioned, Pat, right. um, you had uh, 40 investors um, uh, and about $20 million for um, improvements to uh, the Sugarbush Base Lodge. They built a new base lodge. I think it was called Clay Brook. And um, they put in uh, condos. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the program compared with JPEAK, which sought to um, – sought to get $600 million from investors and actually brought in $400 million. Um, you know, Sugarbush was small potatoes. Um, and I spoke over the years with Lynn Smith, uh, the former CEO of the, of the, of the Sugarbush Resort, and, you know, he was really committed to doing it right uh, and to repaying the investors uh, in a timely fashion. And he did that. Um, and um, the program um, was very successful uh, for um, Sugarbush, and it could have been uh, successful for other projects in Vermont. And, you know, I've heard from people over the years who've said that the JP scandal is such a shame because it had the regional center done its job. Um, this could have been a, a program that really benefited the state long term, uh, not just in the Northeast Kingdom, but uh, in other areas. So um, Forbes is right um, that uh, handled appropriately, this can be a great program. And the United States is the only country that offers this. It was first um, offered in Canada and uh, in Australia, and then uh, the United States picked up on it. Well, I think, and, and I've used to talk to Win too all the time, um, and he felt, you're right, he was very committed to it, and he he thought it was a great program because if done correctly, it benefits a lot of people, brings in jobs, um, gets people um, to come here and, and invest in the community. Um, and I think just the, the whole J.P. thing was 
was just huge. And and um, as we as we go through talking about all the things that it wanted to accomplish, uh, I mean, it was really it was really too big to to manage. And uh, maybe that was wasn't helping the state either. That it was just so convoluted. It's hard to hard to get your hand your hands on it. Maybe because um, I know the well. Uh, I think it's it's one of those situations where it was too big to fail. It, uh, there you go. Yeah, because I know and it was you know it was it was a you know it 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 was the largest EB five project in the country. Right, right. And uh, the fraud was the largest EB five fraud in the country. So I mean, you look at say Jared Kushner's use of um, EB five funds in New York City. His proposal was for a, a fifty million dollar skyscraper, just to give you some idea of the yeah. scale. Um, you know, the developers of JP wanted to use $600 million for not just the projects that ultimately defrauded in, investors were involved in, but, um, you know, they wanted to build a marina and conference center on Lake Nantramagog and uh, an office building uh, in uh, downtown Newport, which stole a big hole uh, because they tore down the existing Main Street buildings and just kind of left it there. Um, and then, uh, you know, you had a, a light airplane company and a German window manufacturing company that were supposed to be a part of all this. And um, those projects kind of fell by the wayside along with, you know, at Burke Mountain. It was meant to be more than just a hotel. They were going to have an Olympic-scale um, training center there. We have Jim from Barry on the phone would like to join our conversation. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, good morning, Pat. Good morning. Good morning, Andy. I have a slightly different question, subtle difference. Uh, may have already been asked and answered, um, but it has to do with state criminal, uh, state uh, officials, criminal activity, uh, if if there was any. Um, you had mentioned um, cover up, um, but I, I interpreted what you said as covering up adverse information that may not be favorable, but not necessarily covering up fraud specifically. Did you find any evidence of any wanton um, covering up of, of fraudulent activity that they knew about? You had mentioned, or someone had mentioned, Pat had mentioned, too big to fail. I can see where it got to that point, but did it ever get to the point that it was obvious that they knew that this was fraud? Yes. Hmm. Yes, they knew it was a fraud, um, and they kept bringing in new investors. And when was when was that? Do you know specifically when that? When you in 2015? Really? Yeah. Yeah, oh, in 2015 they knew, and they kept bringing people in, and they actually had um, conversations with the, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission about it, and um, they told the SEC that they wanted to continue to bring in investors um, using a complicated escrow. Uh, arrangement that the state actually ended up managing itself uh, and the SEC um, raised its eyebrows uh, and uh, was not, you know, did, you know, warned them not to do it and they did it anyway. Wow. Jim, that was a great yeah. question. Took my breath away here. I had not heard uh -huh. that quite so specifically. Um, I know when I was looking through these pages of articles, I mean, after a while there was a pattern and, um, and all of the articles that you wrote just built one on top of the other. 
And I was trying to figure out what point did it become obvious because, um, uh, and you said in, in 2014, wow. Well, it should have been obvious that it was a fraud in 2012, frankly. It was really in their faces in 2015. I think, you know, by that time, uh, Digger had published a number of articles and yep. investors were complaining. But they had investor complaints back in 2011. Uh, they had um, experts in the field who were questioning um, the whether or not there was fraud uh, back in 2011. And all that was uh, going to come out at the trial. But now that they're uh, – and, and, you know, Russ Barr, um, head of our law group, was um, going to put state officials on the stand. Um, but because they chose to reach a global resolution, um, that didn't happen. So – there, there's still a, a story or two to write um, about uh, what's come up in the records that were withheld by the state uh, for, um, you know, I first requested these documents in 2015. Um, I worked with uh, Tim Cornell, an independent attorney in New Hampshire, and the Cornell Law School First Amendment Clinic and the Vermont ACLU um, from 2017 to the present uh, suing over records, and um, the state, uh, you know, continued to withhold the records, and uh, and then right up into the point, you know, where uh, we were, um, you know, going to court, uh, they would release a smattering of them. So this was a pattern. We had to sue them three times, uh, and finally, um, as a result of the Sutton case, which is the Bar Law Group effort, um, they finally released. Um, 39,000 pages of records that they had withheld based on loopholes in the uh, Public Records Act, including attorney-client privilege, um, you know, work product. Uh, there are a bunch of different exemptions in the law that they've been exploiting as a shield uh, to um, prevent uh, any form of transparency into what really happened. Uh, and so this has been uh, quite a fight uh, um, in terms of, of the records effort. And I just, you know, want to express my gratitude right here and right now um, to the Vermont ACLU, to Tim Cornell and the Cornell Law School First Amendment Clinic because they have been dogged. And it's been, even though our efforts were not successful legally, um, it uh, continued to put pressure um, on the state. And we were able to um, reveal, for example, that the Vermont Regional Center uh, had been shut down by the federal government uh, in 2016. And the state, uh, under uh, Governor um, Phil Scott, uh, refused to uh, release those records until we sued for them. So it, it's, been, uh, it's been quite a deal over the years. Well, we said thank you as well just for, for just keep pushing. And I was looking at your first article that had your name on it, not editor, uh, was a v, VT Digger exclusive. It was in July uh, 2014, and it was quite a story in itself. There's a clue. It said, J. Peak loses the trust of their first EB-5 investors because uh, Bill Sanger, and, um, uh, who's uh, CEO of J. Peak, he seized, I don't know how he did this, he seized ownership of the Tram House Lodge and turned their half a million dollar equity stake into IOUs. And there were a few investors a little unhappy because they didn't know he was doing it. 
Well, that's and right. They kept it a secret for uh, about nine months, and uh, they essentially changed the limited partnership agreement, which is a contract between uh, the developers and the investors. And they changed it um, in a number of ways uh, without the knowledge of the investors. One of the changes they made was to uh, put off uh, paying back the investors um, instead of uh, giving their money back in five years. Um, they decided to um, pay them back in nine years. It's a big uh, balloon payment at the end. Um, and um, they also uh, changed uh, the escrow language so that they could move money uh, from the account uh, into um, treasuries and margin loans that uh, Aero Kiros was, was using um, to... Um, to, to uh, his own ends, um, he ended up uh, stealing about $50 million directly and misusing $200 million ultimately, um, and that was how he did it. And uh, the Tramhouse investors were critical because they were the folks who um, put money up in 2006 before the resort was even sold to Ariel Caros in 2008. And their money, uh, which was held by Mount Sansevier International in Canada, was uh, transferred to Kiros uh, on the day of the closing uh, for JPEAK. And he used the money um, from uh, the EB-5 investors to purchase the resort um, for about, I can't remember now, $28 million, something like that. And um, they, uh, the, the investors were not aware of this. Uh, until uh, years later, uh, until 2014. Uh, but I think it's worth noting um, that the state of Vermont, uh, in its role as, um, you know, the administrative and managerial arm um, uh, for these projects, uh, did not do any background check on Ariel Kiros. Uh, they, they, they really, uh, they didn't do any due diligence at the time. And had they done so, they would have found out what we did, which is that. You know, he'd ripped off some investors in Texas and and um, other places over the years, and uh, you know, he was a, he was a scam artist. And um, they, I think, had a lot of faith in Bill Stanger, who was the front man uh, for the projects, and he was well known uh, and loved by uh, state officials, and and people turned a blind eye because they really wanted these jobs, you know, in the Northeast Kingdom, but. Uh, as a result, um, they got themselves into a heap of trouble. Right. I think I shared with you my turning point on this issue was when uh, Tony Parmelo, who is Mr. Real Estate, I think, and certainly in the Chittenden oh, yeah. area, um, he went to check out the, uh, the the hole in the Newport and walked away and said, "There's the finances. There's something wrong with the finances." And I thought, "Hello." If Tony Parmelo can say that, and it's in print, um, maybe somebody should look, because that was my. Well, not to mention the fact that he he was the you know he's related to Marcel Leahy, Patrick Leahy's wife. You know, know Uh, not not that that's here or there, but I mean, you know, you'd think that uh, a complaint from him would be taken seriously, and um, and it wasn't uh, by uh, by the state officials or even the press. Or, you know, people out there who wanted these jobs to happen. Tony's a a legend, and he's since passed away, but uh, he's a legend, and especially real estate is his thing. So he looks at this hole and goes, no, um, 
they better pay attention, but they didn't. Uh, and on the same um, article that you were, that we were just talking about, um, you listed uh, uh, tons of not tons, a couple of um, things that were actually. It looks like it said project completed. Um, the Hotel J and Water Park. I, are these are there things tangible things that are in the Northeast Kingdom that that are a um, that come back to um, the EB5 funding? Uh, are there things that were were accomplished? This thing said um, JP Hotel Suites Phase Two, Hotel J Water Park Ice Arena Golf Course Clubhouse um, and Commercial Conference Center that the project was completed. Is that uh, so there was some benefit. That's right. No, I, yeah, of, of course. There, that's what made I think the um, scan so um, difficult to um, for, for people to understand because um, they did build Hotel J and they did yeah. build Tram House and they did build uh, a bunch of condos under various project names. Um, where things went awry uh, was when um, Kiros had borrowed $108 million. He commingled all of the escrow accounts, and then he borrowed a big chunk of money and made a big bet on Wall Street with it. And um, as a result, uh, the, in, the 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 um, this this was not known to the investors, um, but the contractors. Uh, knew something was up because they weren't getting paid, and that went on. I, I mean, I remember going up there uh, in twenty summer of twenty fourteen and seeing the stateside uh, hotel condos half built, and I I went to Burke and saw that you know they had uh, that winter twenty fourteen twenty fifteen uh, the hotel was partially built. Uh, you know they had the balloon frame up and some plywood, and it snowed on it all winter because. Uh, the uh, contractors walked off the job. Um, so things started to come to a crashing halt, you know, in 2014. And, and Bill Stanger um, openly blamed me uh, and our reporting at Digger for that problem because uh, the pipeline uh, of new investors started to slow. But it's really only a problem if, <laughs> if you're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and that's what they were doing, you know. So uh, they should have had the money in escrow ready to go for each of these projects, uh, and they should have completed them and then gone to the next. But they started out by using investor funds to buy the resort, and, you know, so this is the way it went. That's why it was a Ponzi scheme. They were constantly backfilling uh, the money they owed uh, to the previous set of investors. So it's kind of like Bernie Madoff. It's a very similar kind of thing where, you know, you have layers of investors and you keep some of them happy uh, as you go along, and then eventually it all falls apart. And when I was looking through these 38 pages, there were some ups and some downs, uh, but then it sort of switched more downs than up. Um, and you could see that things were were starting to fall apart just on the – all the things that you were covering. Um, and I don't think we talk much about Newport itself. Um, Newport was really counting on, as you mentioned before, on jobs and on the economy picking up. And um, and now we've got settlements with some of the investors, which is far less than what they actually invested in. Um, what's the sense of, uh, you had to talk with folks in Newport about um what they're left with up there? 
You know, I haven't talked uh, with people in Newport in a few years, uh, and that's actually something um, I need to circle back with uh, to see how people view it now. Um, I do think that a lot of um, people are still quite distressed uh, about the uh, fact that the um, half the Main Street is gone, and there's literally uh, just a series of old foundations there grass growing up uh, between uh, the concrete walls. So it's pretty depressing. Uh, and I know that um, they've struggled uh, economically, as they have for years uh, in the city. But there was a lot of hope um, yep. with all the promises that Bill Sanger made back in the day. And um, I think now there's a lot of disappointment uh, about what um, what ultimately happened um, the jobs in Newport proper uh, were not created um, because they didn't fulfill their um, their plans to uh, build the biotech center uh, in the in um, right outside the city of Newport, and uh, they didn't build the uh, the, the Renaissance uh, Office Center or the Conference Center in Marina. So. There were some big projects slated uh, for the city that never happened. And um, so I'm sure that uh, people are are probably pretty disappointed. And, um, you know, I have to say that the first person who was on to the ANC bio fraud is a woman named Diane Peel, um, who uh, is, is a nurse, and she did some independent research um, that the state never did, um, showing um, how uh, Kiros was involved in several bogus companies, including Antibio Korea, uh, which was the um, sister plant for Antibio Vermont, um, and his involvement in a company called BioHeart, uh, which was doing stem, supposed to be doing stem stem cell research, and uh, that company um, also was a fraud. So. You know, I, that was back in 2013. Um, again, uh, the state the state didn't want to pay attention. Uh, they they knew about all these things that people brought up and didn't look into it themselves. So it's really well, unfortunate found, for the people of Newport. What I found interesting is that after all over all these years, Bill Stinger, he was sentenced um, for 18 months on a charge of submitting a false document to to the state regarding um, the building of the 110 million bio medical facility and that was how many years ago and they that's what they uh, mm-hmm. charged him with um, and he he's was let uh, I think he came out about nine months early was about half he served half of it and now he's uh, was home on uh, uh, home confinement um, but that was that was how many years ago and it, it took them quite a while to to realize that that was a false document. That was strange to me. Well, I mean, I think what you have to understand is that, um, yes, it happened a long time ago. Uh, they they uh, were aware that it was a false document uh, in 2015, and um, they didn't do anything about it uh, until oh. the criminal investigation took place uh, four years later, which hmm. to me is bizarre too, because 
frankly, um, if you look at, say, the Sam Bankman-Fried case or Madoff or any other big fraud case, uh, the way it works is the SEC um, collects a lot of data. They do their investigation. They get the FBI involved right away. And then it's kind of done in tandem, you know, that the, the right. SEC will bring charges. And then usually the FBI uh, brings um, brings criminal charges along uh, on the heels of uh, complaints um, lodged in federal court by the SEC. So what's weird about this is that that federal criminal investigation didn't happen until years later. And I've always wondered about that. Um, I, I don't think that that's normal. Uh, that's not SOP. And um, I, I, and because of a uh, lack of transparency by the state and federal government, uh, I, I can't tell you why that happened. But um, typically... You wrote an article. Kind of all at once. You wrote an article early on. I was trying to look for the date here. That said, the um, that the SEC is investigating, and then that was it. There wasn't any any follow up to that. It was that the announcement was made, and there you go. And I think that Mike. Well, Pichel, that was tricky too because the state didn't want to call it an investigation. I mean, I, I interviewed Mike Pichak, uh, who's the state treasurer now, uh, who was part of the Department of Financial Regulation at the time. I interviewed. Susan Donegan and others, and um, they uh, they called it an SEC review and falsely claimed that it was different from an investigation. And um, you know, uh, it's legal to lie to reporters. Let's face it. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I never really understood um, why they did that, except that they were trying to defend uh, JP right to the bitter end until. The SEC brought the hammer down, so um, it's it's uh, it's really unfortunate. We just have a, a few minutes, Anne, but I just uh, there was a settlement reached um, uh, for the first group of investors, which was far less than they had invested. That's for sure. And I, I made a comment that this doesn't feel like it's over. This is going to keep you busy for a while, isn't it? Well, it, it's going to be over this year. Uh, I think it will. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's still um, there's still a lot more to report that has not been um, right. written about in the in the record. So yeah, there will be more. Yeah. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I found this fascinating. Always good to learn new things. Um, thank you for everything you have done for Vermont and delivering the news. What is your tagline? I forget something. About uh, news in pursuit of truth. There you go. Good tagline. Thank you very much, Anne Galloway, and best of luck with your new endeavors. Not so new, just revisited. See you you soon. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint.